In December of 2016, this group of models, all of whom like make money as Instagram influencers, were flown to a remote island in the Bahamas and invited to this party and then asked to like post about it on Instagram. Okay, it was like an epic party on this private island in the Bahamas, all these supermodels. Um, and this was the heart of a cutting edge brand strategy targeted directly at millennials with a lot of money to spend. It was the first real public sign of the fire festival. Okay, the brand new festival was being broadcast by supermodels and boosted by other powerful Instagram influencers like Kylie Jenner, and it generated instant buzz. It was purported to be like the next big viral event, an exclusive, immersive experience in the Bahamas with celebrities and musicians. Ja Rule was one of the founders. Blink-182 and other big acts are supposed to be there. All you need to do to be a part of this is just like fork down a lot of money and buy a spot. Luxurious beach accommodations, gourmet food, all of that's being promised, well worth the tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars you were gonna lay down in order to be a part of this event very quickly before it sold out, okay? There's only one problem. The fire Festival didn't really exist. You can show us the video. Fire Festival was supposed to be uh, the new Coachella, the new Burning Man. Exclusivity with access to premier talent. It was going to be an experience bordering on impossible. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen? This is our world. Oh, God. Oh, no. oh. 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 Jesus. Oh. Nightmare in paradise. There was no music. They were put into disaster relief tents. People started to have breakdowns. People started to have panic attacks. No idea what they were doing. It was also a health concern that there were people literally trapped on an island. Just chaos and anarchy. Yikes, right? Did y'all hear about this? It was a thing a couple years ago. And this is the trailer from one of the two documentaries that's just come out this year, one on Hulu, one on Netflix, about this whole disaster, okay? It's like, you know, an epic fraud that was pulled by the founders of Fire who were trying to make something happen but didn't really want everyone to know that there wasn't really anything there until eventually it was obvious. It's a cautionary 21st century tale, okay? Most of us, let's be honest, would not be able to fork over hundreds of thousands of dollars to sign up for this elite event. And because of that, it kind of became a thing where people were like making fun of all these people and like, oh, Hunger Games for rich people um, happening in the Bahamas. <laughs> weep, weep, I'm so sad. Um, and yeah, most of us wouldn't do that. But it does raise the question, of the power of influence, right? That these folks felt like this was something that was real and that they should be a part of and that they were willing to put hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line for, right? Now we may not go to the Bahamas to try to be a part of the next big festival, but it does raise the question of how are we being influenced every day? Especially if we're on social media, especially if we're kind of interacting in this digital landscape. Um, and what choices are we making? Maybe not on that scale, but like in our everyday lives that have impact, and we may not always be conscious of it, right? Are we aware of the powers that influence us? 
Are we okay with what they're trying to convince us to participate in? Well, I thought this was an interesting thing to think about because we've been doing this teaching series at the beginning of this year on discernment. I've been calling it hearing through noise. And the goal is to grow in being able to discern and listen to distinguish the voice, the direction of the divine from all the other voices and circumstances that demand our attention, right? To be able to grow in discerning where God might be speaking to us, bringing guidance, direction, encouragement, affection, and where we're tracking with something else. I suggested that the first step, our first of these three teachings, was called turn down the volume. The first step being making space for quiet, for contemplation, to pay attention to our inner life. And then the last time we were together, we focused on getting to know our own voices. What do we bring to the table, right? I talked about things like the Enneagram that could be tools for helping uh, get better sense of that. And then uh, today, we're gonna talk, I'm calling this teaching, Check Your Sources. And I wanna turn our attention to this question of influence. What are the things that are influencing us, whether consciously or not, and how do the voices we listen to, the shows we watch, the people we follow, the news we consume, how do all of those things impact the way we think? Specifically, what effect do those influences have on our capacity to hear from and follow Jesus? If we're gonna try to grow in discernment, it seems like we have to address that, right? So, but I wanna say from the beginning, I wanna acknowledge that the topic of considering how our influences impact our practice of faith might feel a bit fraught for some of us, okay? I know a number of us grew up in different ways that may have reflected our parents, our families, our cultures, varying attitudes around the significance of influences on us. So like some of us grew up in really religious, conservative contexts, okay? Jason was raised in a conservative Christian home, my husband, most of his childhood, they didn't have a television. They didn't dress up for Halloween. They weren't allowed to watch a number of Disney movies because witchcraft. Um, couldn't listen to secular music, all right? And at the heart of this attitude, there's like a real fear, right? There's a fear of secular culture and its power to lure us from Christian faith, from the behaviors associated with that, right? There's a suspicion, a fear of corruption. So MTV, PG-13 movies, liberal arts colleges, all of these can be seen as like something threatening to a worldview based on the Bible, right? And if that was our experience, we may have come to a sense as we grew up that like that sheltering might have been silly at the least, repressive and shaming at the worst. So some of us might feel triggered by even a conversation, the very notion that we should subject the influences we're taking in, like, to any scrutiny, right? I just want to acknowledge that. Others of us may have had different experiences, like me. I watched movies like Dirty Dancing and Top Gun, like, on repeat as a kid, over and over at a very young age. And my parents really didn't seem bothered by it. And as an adult and a parent, I look back at that with a little bit of, like, surprise. While I'm like kind of grateful for the lack of hang-ups like around guilt and shame and fear of corruption that I have, um, I'm also aware of ways in which I was exposed to content that I don't think was always helpful for me at the time and without any guidance as to what to do with it. And so, you know, some of it just went over my head. 
But I think other ways, a lot of that content had a shaping effect on me, and it would have at least been helpful to have like thoughtful conversations with caring adults in my life about what I was taking in, right? So what do we do with these tensions? Should we worry about what voices we're hearing, how they might impact our practice of faith, and if so, what's the metric? Should we look out for influences that are good for us versus not so good? What do we do with the reality that like one person's prophet is another person's heretic, right? I'm not sure I can definitively answer these questions, or anyone could, but I'm gonna spend uh, the morning considering a way forward that might be helpful as we navigate them. So I wanna turn your attention um, to a person I've talked about before. Long before people were trying to make a living as Instagram influencers, this French anthropologist, philosopher, scholar named Rene Girard developed a theory about human social behavior. And I find it particularly helpful when considering these questions of influence. Okay, I've talked about Girard before. I'm not gonna get into the whole theory today, but if you'd like to know more, that theory along with its implications for Jesus-centered faith are fleshed out really beautifully in a book by a couple of good friends and fellow pastors of mine, Emily Swan and Ken Wilson. It's called Solus Jesus. I definitely recommend it. Um, what's relevant for our conversation today is Girard's foundational insight that's like the core of all of his work, that humans are intrinsically motivated by what he calls mimetic desire. Humans are intrinsically motivated, and if you're, fill, if you're the type who likes to fill in the blanks, this is one. Um, humans are intrinsically motivated by mimetic desire. What does that mean? Mimetic is simply another word for imitative. We copy. Girard believes that all of us have this innate capacity to observe and to mirror one another. We copy each other. You see it in newborn babies, right, as they start to kind of become socially aware and you touch your head and they start to touch their head, right? You see it in apes. <laughs> you see it in middle school, everywhere, all right? We have this capacity to copy each other. Neuroscientists have identified the powerful biological forces at play, like mirror neurons that seem to hardwire our brains. They basically lay neural pathways that that imitate what we see, okay, in other people. We observe, we imitate one another. It's an important component that's foundational to social connection. But Girard asserts that the mimetic instinct impacts not just our behavior, but our very desire. We see what others are desiring, and we naturally desire the same thing. And while that might be very natural, and in of itself it's not necessarily problematic, According to Girard, inevitably this mimetic desire leads to rivalry. There starts to be rivalry between people. Two people mirroring one another's desire for the same thing begin to feel in competition for it. They become rivals. And over time, rivalry will fester and lead to division, even violence. According to this theory, this very powerful process that creates humans' deepest connections with one another also fuels our most fierce divisions. Does that make sense in theory? So for Girard, influence, it's everything. All of us are being influenced, whether we think about it or not, by one another all the time. We can't not be, it's just core to who we are, how we're hardwired. The question is, how are we allowing that influence to control us 
by building in us that rivalry, that desire for, other, for power, for control, that desire to win, someone else to lose, what would it mean instead to be influenced in some other direction? We're going to keep all that in mind. Turn from philosopher René Girard to Jesus, okay? Now, Matthew has in the Bible much of the most robust teaching sections of Jesus in the Gospels. And several times, as he's teaching his followers, Jesus, the rabbi, made comments warning his followers about the influences they were taking in. Specifically, he seemed most concerned for his audience with toxic religious influences. But what specifically were the problems with those influences? We're going to take a look at three specific places in Matthew where Jesus warns his followers about the influence of others in their day. And then we'll see if we can draw any common themes about what he wanted his followers to be concerned with. So the first warning comes from Matthew 7. This is the end of the famous Sermon on the Mount. As he's wrapping it up, this is where he goes. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So this first passage, wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, is talking about what Jesus calls false prophets, right? Now remember, prophets in Judaism were the people who communicated on behalf of God, often challenging norms of the day. There was something God needed to say. Their prophecies often spoke truth to power, served as a reminder of God's priorities when God's people seemed to be getting kind of off track. And here, Jesus seems to be saying there are folks who claim to share this prophetic heritage. They claim to be doing this, but they're not actually speaking on behalf of the divine. And Jesus uses the image of the wolf in sheep's clothing to describe these people. By outward appearances, these people look harmless. They may even look like a vulnerable little sheep. But there's something about them that's being hidden from view. Beneath the vulnerable appearance, something sinister is lurking. Behind the false prophet's veneer is this dangerous, consuming desire like a ferocious wolf. Jesus is clear that the outward appearance, perhaps even the very words this prophet speaks, don't reveal whether they're a sheep or a wolf. You can't tell. Instead, Jesus switches metaphors and compares the influencers to trees, which take longer to reveal their nature. You have to wait it out a bit. But Jesus seems to think that when they do, it's more clear. They reveal their nature more clearly. You may not be able to see what's under the mask of the sheep's clothing, but you can look at the fruit of the tree. You can examine if it's bountiful or if the tree is pretty anemic. You can taste the fruit. You can see if it's bitter or sweet. And Jesus warns his followers to do that kind of discernment work when they consider who they're listening to, who they allow to tell them what God's priorities are. 
he asks his followers to look beyond the appearances of their influencers to the outcomes those people and the messages they speak produce. Look beyond the influencers to the outcomes. I think we might have this one on the, on the screen. Look beyond the influencers to the outcomes that these people and the messages they speak produce. Do they bring outcomes that nourish, that sweeten, that bring life? Or do, they or do those words and the people who speak them produce something distasteful, something bitter? Would have been an interesting thing for all of those people who forked down the money at fire to think about. And actually, that's part of what these documentaries are telling the story. If you had followed the information about the outcomes of the producers, you might have picked up sooner that this wasn't going to go the way that the appearance was. Right? There's something where the fruit did not match the look, right? Now you can argue, and you wouldn't be wrong, that Jesus doesn't actually give us an exact definition here of what he sees as good fruit versus bad, right? He doesn't really name that. But in other sets of warnings, he does seem to be more clear. So let's look at that, okay? Well, now we're skipping ahead to Matthew 15. This comes in reaction to a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day these Pharisees, and they're criticizing Jesus and his followers for not washing their hands in the way that they think that's supposed to happen to make you ritually pure when you eat, okay? So that's kind of the setup, and this is Jesus' response. Then he called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What defiles a person is not what goes into the mouth. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that when the Pharisees heard this saying, they were offended? And he replied, oh, every plant that my heavenly father did not plant will be uprooted. Leave them. They are blind guides. If someone who is blind leads another who is blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And Jesus said, even after all this, are you still so foolish? Don't you understand that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and then passes out into the sewer? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these things defile a person. For out of the heart come evil ideas, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that defile a person. It's not eating with unwashed hands that defiles a person. Okay? Here again, we have Jesus speaking about what's problematic, what isn't, and how the true nature of those things becomes revealed. Here, rather than talking about fruit coming from a tree, Jesus is talking about words coming out of your mouth, right? But essentially, it's the same concern. It's the same idea. The poor tree, the bad tree, is going to produce rotten fruit because of what's festering inside. The defiled person makes clear the ways they are living counter to God's heart through the words that come out of their mouth, right? They're revealers of what's going on internally. And here Jesus is really clear in identifying the fruit that's bad or the words that defile, okay? He calls them evil ideas, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. So what do all these things have in common? 
What do they have in common? If we consider Rene Girard's insights, I think we might observe that all of these things that defile, all of them, the sins we could call them, are connected to rivalry. They are all connected to rivalry, okay? They're all rooted in that toxic, mimetic desire that causes us to want more for ourselves and less for somebody else. So we speak falsely of another, why? In order to build up our own image and diminish theirs. That's a rivalrous desire. We take what doesn't belong to us. Rivalry, we take an intimate partner that doesn't belong to us. Rivalry, we dominate, right? We inflict violence in order to become more powerful. It is all coming from that same core spirit of separation, of envy, of rivalry. That fuels these poor choices, all the nasty fruit, all the things that defile. Interestingly, in this conversation about influence to think about, Jesus seems to have less concern about what actually goes into people. He doesn't seem hyper-concerned with impurity when he talks about what we consume. He says that's not really the problem, right? What he's concerned about is the impact stuff has on our hearts, on our character, on the kind of people we're becoming. That's what he cares about more than exactly what the things are coming in, right? There's a clear warning here when it relates to following folks who are led by their rivalrous instincts. I think that's what Jesus is seeing as problematic in these Pharisees. They are led by a sense of religious rivalry. They need to judge themselves more morally upright than their neighbors. That's why they're calling out Jesus and his followers for not washing their hands the right way. It's a rivalrous intent, one rooted in self-righteousness. But that righteous arrogance has created a kind of blindness. It's like they have blinders on. And that makes the Pharisees a bad influence. That kind of rivalrous blindness, moral uprightness. And so to follow them means to fall into the same mistaken path they are taking as they fall into the pit, to suffer the same consequences that they are. The critique of these leaders and the warning against following in their footsteps is made even more clear toward the end of our gospel story in the third set of warnings, which we see in Matthew 23. This is really towards the end as in the last days of Jesus' life, he gets even more clear about what he wants his followers to understand. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the experts in the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, therefore pay attention to what they tell you and do it. They do have authority. They are sharing the Torah. That's important to listen to. But do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads, hard to carry, put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing even to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by people, for they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. Those were uh, various kind of um, traditions that were how you dressed and appeared that made it clear that you were um, upright. 
They love the place of honor at banquets, the best seats in the synagogues, elaborate greetings in the marketplace, and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, we see Jesus calling out this spirit of rivalry in this religious leaders. They perform religious devotion as a means of building themselves up. It's feeding their own ego. But their quest for status and power is counter to the very spirit of God. Interestingly, I think this is really fascinating. Jesus makes clear that these teachers, in actually communicating the word of God, are speaking good information even though they aren't embodying it, right? And I think this is one of the most interesting invitations to discernment that Jesus offers. Pay attention to what they tell you and do it, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they teach. Have you ever heard that phrase, do as I say, not as I do? It often comes from parents, right? <laughs> Have this sense of this is what I'm trying to teach, and I myself sometimes fall short and I lose it. And I make mistakes, so please do as I say, not as I do. Here, Jesus is applying that to these Pharisees and teachers of the law. Do what they say, not what they do. You can get, here's how I'm summarizing that, you can get good information from bad sources. You can get good information sometimes from bad sources. Not always, but at times. Bad sources may still deliver good information because the information itself is still good. But you have to be careful. That's what he's inviting them into, to discern. Where's the good information? And then where do we need to not follow the way the, the sources are applying it? Right? You need to learn to tell the difference. Where are the sources themselves falling short of what they teach? So René Girard was not originally a person of faith. He was an atheist, literary scholar, this is 20th century, fascinated by myths and the cultures they arose in. But um, as he developed his theory regarding mimetic desire, rivalry, violence, Girard, of course, studied the Bible alongside texts from all kinds of religions and belief systems, and he came to faith in Jesus. And for him, it was the uniqueness of Jesus that was compelling. And specifically, in the story of Jesus, Girard saw something totally different than in any other set of myths or faith narratives from his estimation. He saw a story about a God who comes to the humans who are struggling with their sense of rivalry with one another and with God. For him, that's the core of sin. It is, it is the apple in Eden. Humans seeing there is a God, I am in rivalry with that God. I want to be like that God. And so I will take this thing so I can be as powerful as that God. Right? So that, that sense of rivalry is the deepest problem right from the beginning. That's, that's how he understood it. But he saw through Jesus something totally different. A God who sees 
that humans are struggling with that sense of rivalry. And so that God comes to model a different way to be, a non-rivalrous way of being. For Gerard, Jesus offers a path to living without rivalry. Jesus offers a path to living without rivalry. We saw a little bit of that in our last passage, where Jesus gave his followers these real clear directions that communicate a real turn from that kind of rivalry. You don't need to call one another rabbi or father. You don't need to be called that. You're using those as titles to compete with one another and with God's own self. Instead, practice servanthood. That is the counter to rivalry, to make oneself less. It's the only thing that can disarm it, is to say, no, I'm not going to live that way. Just a few verses before Jesus was railing on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, just a few verses before our last passage, Jesus was making clear to his followers what he saw as the center of the whole gospel story, the central theme. If you had to distill what's the grand, you know, arc of all of this, what's, what, where's the, like, central point that everything has to be distilled down to, the core of the good fruit he's seeking? And it comes in the response to a testing question from one of these Pharisees who asks him, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. This is core. Now, if we grew up in church, we may have heard this a thousand million times and feel like, oh, yeah, whatever. This was an original formation when he spoke it. He spoke it to people who knew the law, but no one had ever paired this verse in uh, Deuteronomy with this verse in Le Leviticus. They were brought together from different books in the Torah. They were held up among thousands of laws to say, if you had to pick two, here's where they are. And they, they have to be connected. It's not just one, because they'd asked him, what's the most important? And he puts the two together. This is them, right? This is the heart of it all. Because Jesus came to communicate, I think, you can't love God in a way in which you are still in rivalry with others or with God. You can't love God in a rivalrous way. Not really. To love God is to love others without rivalry. To love others, to love your neighbors as yourself, to love others without rivalry is to love God. They are one and the same. They are deeply connected. Jesus understood we are imitative beings. We need models. Our desires are shaped by others' desires. We copy what we see. And so he came not only to communicate to us the pure love without rivalry that the divine feels for us and for all of creation, but also to embody that love in a way that can be imitated. You hear that? Jesus came to embody that love in a way that can be imitated. And one of the clearest examples that this was what he intended 
was what he did the night before he died in his last intimate dinner with his closest followers when he took off his garments and the rabbi became the most grunt job servant, right? The job no one wanted to do. He washed his followers' feet, taking for himself that lowest position, saying to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and do so correctly, for that's what I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you too ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example. You should do just as I have done for you. Copy me, mimic me, imitate me. Let my desire to serve be the desire that is fostered in you. Our capacity to be influenced by and to influence others is part of how we're made. It's what makes us human. Resistance is futile. We're going to be influenced by one another. That's not a bad thing. At its best, our mimetic nature is a gift. It means we have profound capacity to connect, to empathize, to share one another's burdens. And I think this is what Jesus was inviting us into. He invites each of us to take a journey of growth, to direct our imitative nature away from the rivalry, suspicion, and fear that separate us from others and move instead toward building deep connection and companionship with God, one another, and the world around us. Amen? I'm going to say it one more time because this is kind of coming, bringing it home. Jesus is inviting each of us to take a journey of growth, to direct our imitative nature away from the rivalry, suspicion, and fear that separate us from others and move instead toward building deep connection and companionship with God, one another, and the world around us. Amen. So if there is truth to all that, how does it get us back to where we started? How does it impact the way we think about what influences us? How does it impact our discernment? I'm just going to suggest a couple takeaways we can reflect on. First, we've got to consider the various influences in our life. And specifically, I want you to ponder this. Two, two different kinds. What influences in your life trigger your own rivalry, making it harder to love your neighbors as yourself? Let me flesh that out a little bit. Are there people you follow on Instagram, things you subscribe to, news feeds you follow, people in your life that when you talk to them, you start to recognize your own frustration with others being stoked, right? Kind of feel that sense of hostility in your spirit. You find yourself thinking us versus them. Maybe you find yourself mirroring that rivalrous energy in ways that can bring a lot of disconnection. I mean, honestly, there are media outlets that it feels like are created to stoke this in us. Everything they do, everything they say is framed in a way that gets us pissed off at somebody, right? Can you recognize when that's happening? And here's one that's even a little bit trickier to think about. What influences in your life are exploiting your attention to serve their own rivalrous desires? What influences in your life are exploiting your attention, your own mimesis, your need to copy, 
to serve their own rivalrous desires. What empires are you buying into just by paying attention? Are there social media apps? Are there people or things you interact with that perhaps your attention's being used to build another's power? Serve their own rivalrous needs. I mean, Jason was reflecting to me recently. We went to a mall. We don't go to malls very much anymore. Um, but we were there for a restaurant we wanted to try. And we just walked through the mall. It only took about 10 minutes to get to the restaurant. But he's like, man, maybe because I haven't been to one of these for a while, I just realized how gross I feel. Like, I feel really like, bleh. <laughs> you know, and it was this sense of like, I actually came in today feeling fairly content with my life. Like, you know, I've got some struggles, but it's fine. And now I feel like, man, my life is crap. Like, <laughs> I need that thing though. You know, or those beautiful people up there. I'm not like them. Ugh. You know, it's just that feeling of like, gross. But it's there, it, you can't help but respond to, man, maybe if I had that cool new laptop or that awesome coat or that beautiful purse, maybe my life would be a little better, just a little bit, you know? Um, and it's, they know that that does that to us, right? There's a reason that companies are shelling out thousands of dollars to people, just average everyday folks, but they happen to have influence on Instagram. And so people are making, like, they're living, kind of selling us stuff in this, like, more covert way of, well, it's not officially from the bag company, but this person really likes that bag, so I think I'm more likely to buy it. And I think I saw something like 80%, like, the, it's, like, way higher percentage of people are willing to buy something that they see from an Instagram um, than from some other kind of ad. So it's very effective, right? But what does it mean? that we're actually, our attention is being used to build up someone else's empire, right? To build up their own rivalry. And I gotta be honest, the church can be complicit too. Sadly, churches can be their own mini empires. There are bills to pay. Sometimes that means that uh, it can be helpful to kind of stoke uh, culture war in order to keep a loyal, group that feels like they need to contribute financially to this thing to buy their salvation. These are hard questions to analyze. Maybe it feels hard to even imagine really understanding the influence because really most of us, we're just saturated by it. We are. Just the world we live in is saturating us, whether whatever we're tuning into. And I'm not trying to say we all should just like withdraw completely. But I think it is important to be mindful. Maybe we try taking an influence audit. Say for a day or two or three this week. You just think about like maybe you write this down. Maybe you just make a note of it on your phone. Maybe you just take a moment to mental check in. Every time I'm listening to something. Every time I'm watching a video. Every time I'm reading an article. Is it doing one of these things? Is it... Is it is it stoking rivalry in me? Am I potentially serving someone else's rivalry? Would it, what does it mean for me to be aware of that? To be discerning? And then once you've identified those influences that might provoke you or seek to exploit you, this is where enter the spirit. We pray 
And we invite the Spirit, the same Spirit that gave Jesus the insight to be able to say, this part's good, this part's not good, right? That gave him wisdom and insight on what to do with those influences. That Spirit is accessible to us. We pray, we try to get a sense. What might the Spirit be directing for us? It could be that similar to the Pharisees, Jesus is saying there can be good information here. I'm not saying withdraw altogether from Facebook or whatever it is. Um, there might be some ways that, this is, that there is helpful things that this is bringing you. But it's also really important to be wary of, of the ways that these influences are off base as well. And to kind of consider that, to hold those intention. Or you may have a sense that it's time to limit your exposure to whatever influences aren't helpful. To either say I'm done or maybe try taking a season off or, or just like I'm only going to do this for an hour instead of six or whatever it is, right? See how that affects you positively or negatively. There happens to be a season coming that many people find useful for just this kind of thing. Lent is starting in the first week of March. That's a season that a lot of people choose to take six weeks to essentially fast from some sort of influence, whether it's food or whether it's social media or whatever it may be that you may find it might be helpful to just take some time off from that, give your spouse space to kind of reconnect with Jesus and the spirit and then see afterwards, like what was, what was the benefit of that? So that's considering kind of all of the outside influences. Let's end with this, we should also consider how much space there is in our lives for Jesus to influence us. How much space is there for Jesus to influence us, right? That's the counterpoint. If we're naturally going to copy what we're exposed to, and Jesus intended to give us a model to copy in how he lived, then it follows that we need to make sure we have some regular space in our mind, our heart, our spirit, our habits, to be engaging that story again, to be exposed to those desires of Jesus so we can be influenced by them. That's part of why it's useful to do what we're doing here. It's why it's useful to gather consistently. When we gather together with others who are trying to walk a similar journey of faith, we encourage one another. We recenter our focus on Jesus, on his non-rivalrous way of being. I think it's interesting in Deuteronomy, that commandment about loving God with your whole heart and mind and strength, that's where that comes from. Right in there, it's kind of like a, here's how to do this. Um, there's this encouragement that I just want to show you. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, all your strength. These words I'm commanding you today must be kept in mind, and you must teach them to your children and speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, as you get up. You should tie them as a reminder on your forearm. Fasten them as symbols on your forehead. Inscribe them on the door frames of your houses and gates. I'm not saying we all need to have, like, scripture tattoos or post-its all over our house with verses. Though, if you want to do that, you know, that's all up to you. Um, but I think what's being named is that we need to have space to contemplate this stuff regularly. So it has an impact on us in a meaningful way. If we want Jesus to be what we model, we actually have to regularly give him and his non-rivalrous way some of our mental energy. So our mimetic tendencies will be directed in that direction, right? This also could apply to others who are maybe not even people of faith. 
but model for us the same kind of selflessness, the same kind of non-rivalry that Jesus was calling us to. Brian McLaren says this is effectively what prayer does for him. He says prayer is the formation and direction of desire. What if you thought about it that way? Prayer is the formation and direction of desire. He says when I pray, it connects me with the desires of God and allows them to become my own. Interesting, right? I recognize in myself there's a difference between, like, I know the story. I've known the story for a while. I get Jesus served people, like, yada, yada. I, it's like I can mentally assent to that. But there's something about having consistent opportunities to, like, put that right in the center of my mind and, like, consistent personal and group spiritual practices that keep it alive. There are even voices in my life, folks I'm trying to tune into, who, who don't necessarily speak about faith at all. But they have so much to teach me about honoring others, about listening well to the needs of those who are different from me, about setting aside my own comfort in pursuit of justice, flourishing for my neighbors. And when I spend more energy being shaped by all those forces, I think it helps me to actually better follow Jesus and discern his promptings in my life. So this is the journey that we've been on, discernment. Making mental space, making space to kind of take the time to pay attention to our own inner lives. Making space to consider what do we bring to the table? Where are our voices, kind of the big voice that we're hearing everything through? And, and where does that need some, um, some shaping? And what do we do with these outside influences? How do we allow ourselves not to be used by them, but instead to imitate Jesus, to allow ourselves our very natural capacity to be influenced, to go in a direction that brings us the joy of non-rivalrous living that I think Jesus hoped for for us. My hope is that we can be a community that consistently encourages all of those for each other, that encourages us along the way. I want to end this series with the words of um, a 15th century monk named Thomas Akempis. And he wrote a book that has kind of become a spiritual classic for the ages called The Imitation of Christ. And I thought, given the topic, that, that it could be a, a a good way to end this series and also this moment, this morning, um, as we prayed one of the prayers of his. So I want to invite you uh, to take a moment and pray this with me. Grant to us, O Lord, to know that which is worth knowing, to love that which is worth loving, to praise whatever pleases you most, to esteem whatever is most precious to you, and to dislike whatever is evil in your eyes. Do not let us judge merely by what we see with our eyes, nor to decide based on what we hear from ignorant men, but to discern with true judgment between things visible and spiritual, and above all, to search out and to do what is well-pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.